welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 7, An Unknown Species of Whale Although my plunge took me completely by surprise, I nevertheless had a very clear recollection of how I felt. At first, I was dragged down to a depth of about 20 feet. I am a good swimmer, although I cannot claim to be equal of Byron or Edgar Poe, who were masters of the art, and so my dip did not cause me to lose my head. Two vigorous kicks brought me back to the surface. My first concern was to look for the frigate. Had the crew noticed my disappearance? Had the Abraham Lincoln veered about? Was Commander Farragut putting out a boat? Could I hope to be rescued? The darkness was impenetrable, but I could just make out a black mass disappearing eastward until its riding lights faded away in the distance. It was the frigate. I felt utterly lost. Help! Help! I cried, striking out toward the Abraham Lincoln in desperation. My clothes clung to my body, impeding my progress and paralyzing all my movements. I was drowning. I was suffocating. Help! This was the last cry I uttered. My mouth filled with water. I struggled wildly as I felt myself being dragged downward into the abyss. Suddenly, my clothes were grasped by a strong hand. I felt myself being hauled to the surface, and I heard, yes, I really did hear these words being spoken close to my ear. If Monsieur would be obliged enough to lean on my shoulder, he might find it easier to swim. With one hand, I seized the arm of my faithful Conseil. It's you, I said. It's you. Yes, it is I, he replied, at Monsieur's command. Did that jolt throw you overboard at the same time as me? Not at all, but I am in Monsieur's service. I had to follow Monsieur. That splendid boy seemed to think his action was entirely natural. What about the frigate? I asked. The frigate? replied Conseil, turning on his back. I think that Monsieur will do well not to count too much on her. What do you mean? When I dived into the water, I heard the men at the wheel shouting, Their propeller and rudder are broken. Broken? Yes, broken by the monster's tusk. I don't think that Abraham Lincoln has suffered any worse damage than that, but it's a bit of a nuisance for us, because she won't steer any more. Then we're lost. Perhaps, Conseil replied calmly, but we still have a few hours, and in a few hours a lot can happen. Conseil's imperturbability gave me strength. I swam with more energy, but I was so impeded by my clothes, which clung to me like a leaden cape, that I had the greatest difficulty in keeping afloat. Conseil noticed this. Will Monsieur permit me to cut his clothes away? He said, and sliding an open knife under my garments, he ripped them open with one rapid stroke. Then he pulled them off briskly while I swam for both of us. I, in my turn, did the same for Conseil, and we continued to navigate side by side. However, the situation was no less desperate. Perhaps our disappearance had not been noticed, and even if it had, the frigate was unable to come back to leeward toward us since she had been deprived of her rudder. Our only hope, therefore, lay in the boats. Conseil assessed our chances coolly and made his plans accordingly. What an extraordinary lad he was! This phlegmatic young man was absolutely at home in this kind of situation. Thus, it was decided that our only hope of salvation lay in being picked up by the Abraham Lincoln's boats, and hence, we ought to prepare to wait as long as possible. So I decided that we should divide our efforts so that they should not be used up at the same time, 
and this is what we resolved to do. One of us, lying on his back, would remain motionless with his arms folded and his legs outstretched while the other would swim and push him along. This towing procedure was not to last more than ten minutes so that by working in relays like this, we should be able to keep it up for some hours, perhaps until dawn. It was a slim chance, but hope is so strongly rooted in the heart of a man. Moreover, there were, after all, two of us. I might add, however improbable it may seem, that I tried to destroy all illusions. I pretended to give up hope, but I just couldn't. The collision of the frigate and the cetacean had taken place at about eleven o'clock in the evening. I could therefore reckon on our having to swim for eight hours before the sun rose. By working in relays, this should be possible. The sea was fairly calm, and so it was not too tiring. Sometimes I tried to penetrate the coal-black night, broken only by the phosphorescence of our movements in the water. I watched the luminous wavelets breaking over my hand, all flecked with silvery patches. It seemed as if we had been cast into a pool of mercury. At about one o'clock in the morning, I was seized with acute fatigue. My limbs became stiff, and I was suffering from violent cramps. Kinsey had to hold me up, and our preservation depended upon him alone. Soon I heard the poor boy panting. His breath was becoming shorter and quicker, and I realized that he couldn't hold out much longer. "'Leave me! Leave me!' I said to him. "'Abandon, monsieur? Never!' he replied. "'I would rather drown first. At that moment the moon appeared through the edge of a large cloud that was billowing across the sky in the east. The sea glittered in its rays, and its kindly light gave us new strength. I looked up and surveyed all points on the horizon. Then I saw the frigate. She was five miles away, a dark, barely perceptible mass, but there were no boats in sight. I wanted to shout, but what was the good of shouting at such a distance? My swollen lips would produce no sound. Kinsey, however, was able to utter a few words, and I heard him repeat several times, Help! Help! We stopped swimming for a second and listened. Was it the buzzing in our ears, or was it really a cry answering Kinsei? Did you hear that? I murmured. Yes, I did. Kinsei gave another desperate cry. This time it was unmistakable. A human voice responded. Was it the voice of some wretch, abandoned in the middle of the ocean, some other victim of the collision? Or was it one of the frigate's boats calling to us in the dark? Kinsei made a, a supreme effort, and resting on my shoulder, while I made one final effort to remain afloat, he raised himself half out of the water, and then he fell back, exhausted. What did you see? I saw, he murmured, I saw, but we mustn't talk. We have to save our strength. What had he seen? Then, I don't know why, for the first time, I thought of the monster. But where had that voice come from? The times are long past since Jonas take refuge in the bellies of wells. However, Kinsei was still towing me. Sometimes he would raise his head, staring in front of him and uttering a cry, which would be answered by a voice that came nearer and nearer each time. But I could scarcely hear it. My strength was exhausted. My fingers were stiffening and parting, and my hand was scarcely helping to hold me up. My mouth was opening convulsively and filling with salt water. I was chilled to the morrow. I raised my head one last time and began to sink. At that moment, I bumped into something hard. I clung to it. Then I felt someone pulling me up to the surface. I felt my chest subsiding, and I fainted. I am certain that I came to soon after, thanks to the vigorous massage that I was getting. I half opened my eyes. Conseil, I murmured. Did Monsieur ring for me? replied Conseil. Then, by the final rays of the moon, which was sinking toward the horizon, I saw a figure that was not Conseil's, that I immediately recognized. Ned! I cried. 
Yes, it's Ned in person, monsieur, and I am still after my prize, replied the Canadian. Were you thrown into the sea by the collision, too? Yes, professor, but I was luckier than you, because almost immediately I found a floating island. An island? Or should I say, your gigantic narwhal? Do explain, Ned. I soon found out why my harpoon had not penetrated his skin and had slid off his hide. Why, Ned, why? The reason is, Professor, that the monster is made of steel. Here I had to gather my wits, remember what had happened, and be sure of what I was saying. The Canadian's last words had produced a sudden reaction in my brain. I quickly hauled myself up to the highest point of the half-immersed creature or object that was providing us with a refuge. I felt it with my foot. Obviously, it was a hard, impenetrable surface, and not that soft substance of which most of the great marine mammals are made. But this hard body might be a bony shell similar to that of the antediluvian animals, in which case I could classify the monster among the amphibian reptiles, such as tortoises or alligators. But it wasn't. The blackish back that supported me was smooth and shiny without any overlapping scales. When one tapped it, it made a metallic sound, and however incredible it might seem, it appeared to be made of riveted plates. There could be no doubts whatsoever. The animal, the monster, or the natural phenomenon that had intrigued experts all over the world, bewildered and confused the sailors of both hemispheres, was, it must be admitted, a still more astonishing phenomenon a phenomenon created by the hand of man. I could not have been more surprised had I discovered the existence of the most fabulous, the most mythological being. It is easy enough to believe that all things prodigious come from the Creator, but suddenly, to find the impossible, mysteriously contrived by human hands, and set before one's very eyes, this was utterly confusing. There was no time to waste wondering. Here we were, stretched out on the back of a sort of marine craft, which, as far as I could judge, was the shape of an immense fish made of steel. Ned Land had already made up his mind at that point, and Conseil and I could do nothing but agree. So, I said, this thing must have a means of locomotion inside and a crew to work it. It must have, replied the harpooner, and yet, during the three hours I've been on this floating island, it has shown no signs of life. You mean this boat hasn't moved? No, Monsieur Aranax, it just floats on the waves, but it doesn't move. But we know, without a doubt, that it possesses great speed, and as an engine is needed for that, as well as a mechanic to work the engine, I conclude that we are saved. Hmm, said Ned, who evidently was not so sure. At that moment, as though to show that I had been right, there was a bubbling sound at the rear end of the strange machine, which is obviously driven by a propeller, and it began to move. We just had time to cling to the superstructure, which protruded about a yard out of the water. Fortunately, it was not going very fast. As long as she moves only horizontally, muttered Ned, I have no objection. But if it takes it into its head to dive, then I wouldn't give two dollars for my hide. The Canadian might well have quoted an even lower price, because it was imperative that we communicate with whatever kind of beings were concealed inside the machine. I examined its surface to find some sort of opening, some panel or a manhole, to use a technical expression. The lines of rivets along the joints and the plates were quite firm, tight-fitting, and uniform. Furthermore, the moon had disappeared, leaving us in total darkness. We should have to wait for daybreak before we could find out how to get inside this underwater craft. Our salvation, therefore, depended entirely on the caprices of the mysterious helmsman 
who was steering this machine, for if they decided to dive, we were lost. Unless this happened, I did not doubt that it would be possible to get in touch with them. If they did not produce their own air, they would of necessity have to surface from time to time to take in fresh supplies of breathable molecules, so there had to be some kind of opening to establish contact between the inside of the craft and the outer air. As for our chances of being saved by Commander Farragut, there was no hope of that. We had drifted westward, and I estimated that our speed, which was fairly slow, was about twelve knots. The propeller was pounding the water with mathematical regularity, sometimes emerging from the surface and throwing up sheets of phosphorescent spray to a great height. At about four o'clock in the morning, the craft began to move faster, and we found it difficult to hold on at this breakneck speed with the propeller blades threshing furiously behind us. Fortunately, Ned found a large mooring ring fixed to one of the plates, and we managed to hang on to that. Eventually, the long night came to an end. I can no longer remember all the impressions that I had during that time, but I do remember one detail. At times, when the sea and the wind were quiet, I thought I could hear vague sounds, strains of fleeting harmony, produced by far-off music. What was the mystery of the submarine craft, of which the whole world was vainly seeking an explanation? What sort of beings inhabited this strange vessel? What mechanical device enabled it to move from place to place with such prodigious speed? Daylight came. The morning mists enveloped us, but they soon, very soon dispersed. I was just going to make a careful examination of the top part of the hull, a sort of horizontal platform, when I felt her gradually sinking. A thousand devils! exclaimed Ned Land, kicking furiously at the plates, so that they gave forth a hollow echo. Open up, you inhospitable! It was difficult to make oneself heard above the deafening pounding of the screw. Fortunately, though, the craft stopped sinking. Suddenly, there was a loud noise of iron bolts sliding aside from within. A hatch opened. A man emerged from it, and then, uttering a strange cry, disappeared immediately. A few moments later, eight hulking men with masked faces appeared, and without uttering a sound, dragged us down inside their formidable machine. Questions to consider after reading. What are the motivations of Professor Aranax, Conseil, and Ned Land? How surprised are you by the monster being a submarine vessel? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.